0: Thank you all for uh, coming today, and I hope you're able to attend as many of these sessions as possible. I think it's a great opportunity for those of us at the university to come to understand our experience uh, a little more deeply as we move through. It's a dramatic change in the funding and the practice and governance of higher education. I want to just say a couple of things before I start, then I'm going to get into a prepared talk. The one thing is that I think uh, we need to look out the front windshield of our vehicles and rather rather than into the rearview mirrors. We will never go back to the days uh, where some of us started our higher education career 30 or 40 years ago with respect to state funding and state contributions. That's gone, and I don't believe it will we'll ever uh, recover that. So we have to figure out a way to move forward sustain the kinds of institutions we have here, and across the country, many different kinds of higher education institutions. And we have to figure out, in our own unique ways, and our own institutions, how to do that. Uh, I'm the Dean of Education, and uh, uh, education colleges have historically have had challenges at, on the campuses of large, important research universities like ours. We are caught between the rock and a hard place. On the one hand, we are thought to and expected to contribute to the local economy through the development of teachers and other educators to work in the schools. That is not always the main mission uh, of research universities whose communities stretch around the globe. Uh, But we're also research scholars, and our (coughs) research uh, needs to have the same kind of uh, rigor and value that the researchers do across campus, and to that we contribute as well. So we have these kind of dual missions, both the local and the global, so we're uniquely caught in this kind of conundrum. But on the other hand, we have a wonderful opportunity that many people in other disciplines don't, and that is that because of the subject matter of our work, we have the opportunity to link our research service and instruction in ways that are really consistent with each other if we think deeply about that and figure out how we might be able to do that. So as a dean of education, what I'm going to do is give a presentation. It's a variation on a talk I've given many times around the country and in Canada over the last 18 months or two years or so. It's about us. So for those of you who are not in education, and I presume that's a significant, if not the majority of you, you'll have to think about your own conditions to make sense of this talk. But I can speak with more force and more authority when I talk about my own experience and my own responsibilities, and that's what I'm going to do. So here we go. The first claim, by the way, when I give this talk to my colleagues who work in the P-12 world of education, they get really riled with me. I gave a talk based on this last night to some alums, and I got into a big fight with a guy. It was a fun fight, uh, but because I had the floor, I could bring it to an end before he had a chance. That's a good debating technique. So the first issue is this. We have largely failed the nation with respect to our K-12 education mission. That is to say we have failed everybody. We have been wonderfully successful with many, many, many children, but not with all And for our nation to endure, for our democratic institutions to succeed, for our economy to be robust, we must do something quite differently. In particular, we are really, really bad. We are unsuccessful with our poor minority kids. Here's some data. I won't go through it very deeply, but this is NAEP. This is National Assessment of Educational Progress, often referred to as the nation's report card. And here we have 2007 NAEP data, uh, fourth graders, You know, little kids, fourth graders, reading achievement. We all know there's a lot of data. You might not know, but if you aren't a good reader by the time you come out of the third grade, the probability of being a good reader thereafter is low. And um, here we have the white kids on top, and here we have the black kids on bottom. This starts in 92. It goes to uh, 07. And we have a gap. What about our Hispanic kids? They're the Hispanic kids. Same assessment, fourth grade reading. The gap has come down a point over that period of time. So, what does it mean? If we had, if I could show the eighth grade data, the kids coming out of middle school into high school it would look the same. Uh, by the way, I can make these slides available to everybody and, uh, if you wish, so don't worry about trying to get data uh, details. Well, we could reduce the gap. Let's assume that this is a linear trend. That is not nonlinear. it's linear. If the, if the gap reduction is linear, we will succeed in reducing the gap for the black kids in 2091, maybe one years from now. We'll c- succeed with Hispanic children in 2397. I don't know if any of you want to sign on to that agenda. I think it's fraught with difficulty. And if I were a politician, I wouldn't want to run on a platform of reducing the gap by 2397. What about high school completion? We're here at a university... More or less, our students come to us after they complete high school. This is data. The public education system in America began in the 1850s. Uh, There is no reference to education in the Constitution. And one of the reasons for that is that there was no education system prior when the Constitution was being written. Uh, The first mandatory education act were passed in Connecticut and in Massachusetts in the 1850s, right before the Civil War. Actually, the legislation was passed a little earlier, but they actually began working in the 1850s. So by the time we get to World War I, right here, we've only had a public education system for maybe, at best, in some states for 70 years, and in many states far less than that. And you can see from the interwar period, here's 1920, here's 52, you see a dramatic increase in high school completion in this country. This is across all groups. And uh, dramatically and sickeningly, is that a right word? Disturbingly, in the mid-60s, we hit a plateau, and since the mid-60s, we start to tail off. Here's some current data from the 2005 census having to do with ethnicity, and we see that the, the white dropout rate is about 6%, black and Hispanic much higher, Hispanic is very disturbing, Uh, Nearly 25% of the Hispanic kids in America were dropping out of high school in 2005. So at this point, this is when I get my K-12 buddies very nervous because they're sort of responsible for that, but maybe not. Let's go to the education systems. I don't know how many of you have thought about this. Maybe some of you have run for school board. Maybe some of you have been on school boards. We have a chaotic system at best in America to govern K-12 education. We have nearly 15,000 school boards. Most school boards have about five members, five or seven members. Figure that out, people. 85, 75 to 85,000 policymakers making K-12 policy in America. And uh, no wonder we have chaos in our system. The system is decentralized and loose coupled When I say loose coupled that means that they're not elements of the program, of, of the system don't link together very well. And, of course, all of you know as I do that this is a very highly politicized environment state legislatures across the, across the country believe that they can pass laws that dictate the micro-processes involved in education. Uh, all high school students should have X, Y, or Z, and often these are decisions that are made on the basis of having a conversation at church. So it's a very politicized and, and difficult system. Uh, what about us in higher education? Well, one of the things that we have here on a campus like U of A Is an awful lot of talent, tremendous amount of talent, distributed right across the university. We have freedom and autonomy. We have something that very, very few institutions have. The faculty at this university, I see some in the room, you guys, you folks, determine what you want to do. We don't have bosses here, same sense that industry has bosses. People decide what they want to do. We have at this university and many others a historic commitment to teaching and to service, often not really aligned with each other or really focused in one particular direction. But now I'm going to show some slides in a second that are actually a, a bit disturbing for me and probably for you. We know right now that states are disinvesting in higher education. We all know it. You know, We took the $200 million uh, hit here at uh, Arizona system just recently. My claim is that policymakers, and what I mean by this, certainly members of the legislature and people who allocate funds, have determined by their behavior that uh, higher education is a private good, not a public good. Now, they might from time to time talk about the public goods and so on, but they really believe by their actions that higher education is private. What I mean by private, the individuals, the students in the room, you benefit personally by getting a degree and earning more money, having a better quality of life, and that's for you to benefit from, and that the public benefits from that education, the spin-offs in the economy, the progress in the quality of life and so on, are really a minor part of this. I believe that our state policymakers believe that. Here's some data I got from an article by Archibald and Feldman in 2006. These are economists, and it starts in uh, 1962. I graduated high school in 1963, so I was going off after a stint in the army to higher education. So here we are in 1962, and what we have here is a graph Uh, across the country, it's aggregated across all the states, a graph that shows the investment, the dollar investment in higher education as a function of $1,000 of state wealth in the economy. So they're constant dollars. They're held constant. And you see that from the 60s, my first degree was at one of those universities that was created right after World War II in the 50s and so on. You see this tremendous investment in constant dollars based on the wealth of the, of the states uh, going up to the mid-70s. The plateaus around 75, and for the last 35 years, we see a dramatic tailing off of the allocations per wealth by state legislatures to higher education. Now, I haven't been able to find yet data that are more recent than this, but I would suspect that... This is going to drop precipitously. Now, the thing is, of course, the value of the economy has dropped, so it might actually plateau because we have less wealth in our states. But the point is that states have been disinvesting for a long time. We all bellyache, you know, all of us bellyache. So here's my bellyache. We're the poor college of education. Nobody funds us. These are some investments that we make here on campus, and you see that. I'm not even bothering to compare myself to engineering or science or law or medicine and any those kinds of places. These are state dollar expenditures for different categories. And you see that in the college education, we spend about 6500 bucks. This is last year. Uh, $6,500 uh, per major in the college. Architecture spends about 8600 Fine arts about eighty-seven. I-, I show this to my donors and the people who help, help advocate for me. And you can see for a degree, we're about, you know, we're $23,000, architecture's 46 dollars fine arts $33,000. But you can see it's a little bit closer on student FTE, and that probably reflects, like in fine art, uh, a little bit more contribution to the gen ed program. But the point is that there are differences in allocations, and the differences in allocations reflect the values of the institution, and that's as it should be. And this is my other donor speech. We serve five percent of the students, we award six percent of the degrees, and we spend two and a half percent of the state dollars. So we're a bargain, and we were in the we were in the high cut group in this year's piece. So what I'm gonna my argument here, actually finally getting to the point, is that we're not gonna get resources from the University of Arizona and the state legislature in Arizona to get our job done. We're gonna have to find other places to get the resources. Now Some of my colleagues in the faculty don't like me to say that. They say, it's your job to go back and fight with the legislature. And my response to that is, I I only have one head. And I really don't like to bang it against brick walls. So let's see if I can find partners that might have more money, or at least available money, to do the work. It turns out that the K-12 system, again, I haven't been able to find newer data than 2005. In 2005, in the United States, we spent $536 billion on K-12 education. It's a big investment. Uh, that number is a lot bigger now, even with the cuts because like in our state, many states have cut higher education more uh, readily than K-12 in the last round. Now, here's, this is another place where my K-12 people don't like me to say this. This comes from the National Center for Education and the Economy, a very interesting publication two years ago called Tough Choices or Tough Times. These are those NAEP data that I talked about earlier. That when I showed the the lack of um, closing of the achievement gap between white and minority kids, what's stunning about this is it's flat, and these are constant dollars. The black bars are the state of uh, are the per pupil expenditures beginning in 1971 and going to 2002, so 31 years, and you can see that the expenditures are going up dramatically. This slide was designed to be shown to business people to show that if you ran your business this way, if you increase your costs by two and a half times and your productivity didn't go up, you would not be in business. And it it was designed to make business people anxious about our education system. And it succeeds generally. This stuff does make you anxious. The driver on this, by the way, the biggest driver on this is a reduction in class size, which is something that uh, teachers groups have been promoting for many, many years. If you, if you have 50 kids in a class or 45 kids in a class and you drop it down to 30 or 28 or 25, you increase the cost dramatically, and that's the main driver on these increased costs. So I'm going to finish pretty soon, but anyway, the point there I'm going is that we have to enter in all, into all these kinds of partnerships, partnerships with lots of different organizations. And that actually, uh, now we get to the university, that's actually what I'm doing. My, I see my role as dean, a dean of, a, of a college as developing the vision for how we can create the organization that is sustainable, economically sustainable, to achieve our goals. Um, if we succeed at this through these kinds of partnerships, I think we can leverage our, our, our shrinking funds Uh, We can get political support support. for us in education. That's extremely important. I don't know if it is in some of the other disciplines of the university. And uh, our work has to be uh, worthwhile. There are some institutional barriers because a lot of people think that having direct impact on your local uh, community is not our role. There are T&P and other issues that are important to think about. How would we do it? I'm going to pass on this one, and I'll go to some other stuff. How did I get to this position? When I was at University of Michigan, I ran a center called the Center for Learning Technologies in Urban Schools. And we were partners with Detroit and Chicago Public Schools. And we did very high quality applied research that produced curriculum, software, teaching professional development approaches that made a huge difference in the children of Detroit. We increased pass rates on science mandated exams by 20% a year in a system where hardly anyone was passing. So it struck me, and we published material, we published our work in the best education journals and the best science education journals and psychology journals. So it convinced me that we can do these things simultaneously. We can do these partnerships. We can work with people who have real challenges. We can help them in their endeavors. And let me talk quickly because I'm going to run out of time, right? Okay, so let me give some examples. The College of Education here is a small organization. Uh, When I got here in 2003, we had 65 tenure screen positions. So it's really, it's one of the smaller colleges. We now have 57, and I think we're headed to the 40s in the near future. Um, And that would be nice if we sustained ourselves in the high 40s. We all know that we're not hiring very many academics. Uh, We haven't had a a faculty hire in the College of Education in two years. This will be the third year where we don't have any new hires. And, of course, people are leaving. So we need to be able to leverage what we have. And we do these things right now. It's my job to create the right context for this, to find the partners in P-20 education, other higher education, early education environments, to engage in collaborative research, and to be involved in policy. Uh, that means that I recruit the, have to recruit the right people. I'm very much involved in that. We have to create the right norms for behavior. That means things like TMP, what counts, what doesn't count. And we require leaders, department heads, and so on, who really buy into this vision. I'm going to give some examples of what we're actually doing in the College of Education right now to do this. And this actually involves virtually no state dollars. Let's start with one. I created, when I came here, the Pima Educational Research Collaborative. This is really small potatoes work, but it really creates a setting for the more complex work to follow. So I go to places like the Raytheon Corporation, uh, who's committed to education, and I ask them every two or three years for a little money. They give me twenty or $30,000, and other donors do the same thing. And I create a pot of about $50,000 a year, forty to $50,000 a year. Then I, I go to school districts. I talk to superintendents and to uh, leaders in school districts. And I ask them if they have a particularly challenging problem where a small investment of resources might help them solve that problem. And then if they have one, I, and they do, I then go find a faculty member who might be interested in working on that problem with a little bit of resources to do it. Here's an example. Some of you might know about the Mammoth-San Manuel School District. It's over on the north slope of the Catalinas. It's a mining community, and the mine has run out, so it's really very poor. They have a lot of Hispanic kids there, and one of their challenges is making sure that their Hispanic kids in the early grades learn how to read. Now, it turns out that we have some really great faculty at the University of Arizona College of Education who are experts, world experts on this. One of them is Chris De silva Itting's, who's done this kind of work with young children for a long time. And so, what we did is I put up 10,000 bucks. Ron Rickles, the superintendent at MAMFM and we all put up 5,000 bucks. We had $15,000. In some places in the, in the university, they wouldn't even bother worrying about $15,000. It's rounding error. But in our little place, 15,000 bucks really,
1: it's <laughs> true, I think.
0: I don't know, in the College of Science, I don't even think you have, you know, everything is, you end at six figures, don't you? That's, that's where you put the decimal. So she worked on that project. She did really great work. She actually helped them. She, be, she built models for Madison Manuel. So their teachers now have better ways of teaching those youngsters. She published articles in good journals. So we did good applied educational research and we did good simultaneously. So we have a whole bunch of these examples in PERC that I've been doing over the years with TOSD. I'll show you one from TOSD. TUSD came to us, they have an elementary science program that involves NSF-funded curricula. So they have the materials, and they have some ways of ta- teaching the teachers how to use the materials, but they didn't have an assessment system to assess whether their kids were successful. So we invested in a project with a couple faculty members here and with TUSD's science educators, and we, we developed these assessments. Out of those assessments came partnerships. Our science ed faculty and their science ed specialists got to know each other really well. They also have a place over at TUSD called the Cooper, Camp Cooper. Some of you might know about Camp Cooper. It's in the foothills in the Tucson Mountains. It's a place for kids to go out and experience the desert and learn a little bit about the desert. It's been around for a long time. It was getting pretty long in the tooth. It was getting a little run down. They were running out of energy to do the programming. We agreed to take over the programming for Camp Cooper, and they agreed to maintain the physical facilities, and they did they being TUSD. We took over the program and we developed programs. It's now a regional center for uh, sustainable uh, education, sustainability and environmental education for the whole region. We run those programs. We bring kids and teachers through from around the region to uh, uh, the Cooper Center for Environmental uh, Learning. We went to Quest, and Quest gave us some money to uh, get solar collectors and water reclamation um, uh, equipment and so on, so that it really is turning out to be a great point. So the idea here is that you can leverage that to other projects. We now have a bigger project funded by Science Foundation Arizona, also grown out of this, that involves corporations in in our community that provide summer internships for early career math and science teachers. They get paid at industry rates, which is higher, not surprisingly, than what they get paid in the school districts. They come here and they do a master's degree that's offered by the College College of Education and the College of Science. and we leverage the quality of science education in the region through that. So we, the, the, the point here is that we have these kinds of collaborative projects. I think that's really the future of a college of education. ASU produces 1,500 teachers a year. NAU produces about 900 or 1,000 teachers a year. We produce about 300 teachers a year our future is not going to be in large numbers. In fact, my guess is that we will even shrink those numbers. Our future is going to provide value through our applied research and development for those organizations, and they will help us fund it. Now, I think I've gotten, I've got a lot more examples, but I'm going to stop and get to my, no, I want to talk about this one. I have to talk about this one because it's Jenny. Project SOAR was originally developed by a federal grant back in the 90s. When Jenny Lee came here from the University of California, Los Angeles, she brought with her a model for engaging undergraduates in service learning. So we went to the Helios Foundation, which is a fairly wealthy foundation here in Arizona that funds education, and we asked them for $250,000 to help support this program. They did. We went to one of our other donors, and she provided an additional $135,000. We now have a program, an undergraduate course called Student Access, Outreach, and Resiliency. And uh, that program, uh, the students who take this course are not education students. They're from across campus. Very few education students take it. It's a 300-level course. They take the course, and they learn about service learning. They learn about the value of of, uh, learning through providing service. And then they mentor middle school kids from around the region. And we give them a little stipend for doing that kind of work. They learn a lot about themselves as, as undergraduates. They provide an enormously valuable service to these children, particularly giving these children in middle school a sense that they too can get to college. This is really important, increasing the aspirations of children as they, before they get into the high school years. And Jenny does fabulous research. She publishes these articles in the best journals and books. And so again, we've brought together all these different missions. So our educational system is desperate. They need a lot of help, and we have the talent. We just have to figure out a, uh, a pathway to take our talent to uh, be brought to bear on those on those uh, problems. We can't rely on university budgets to do this, so we have to leverage through all sorts of uh, partnerships, and we have to really think differently about our work. And I think that that uh, we can be successful if we do it that way. So I thought